Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Sedicase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest ideas in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. This episode is very special. Uh, there's no guest except for Anaximander here, who will not leave me alone and, and let me record. Uh, this is just a recording of my presentation of a paper that was accepted for the Evangelical Philosophical Society, the annual meeting, the main meeting, uh, in San Antonio, Texas. And that was this last, it was in November of 2023. So it's a paper presentation. Hope you guys enjoy it. I just, you know, recorded it on my phone, nothing too special. But uh, the paper is arguing against this guy, Pil Sammy Pilstrom, who argues a moral transcendental argument against the possibility of successful theodicies. So a lot of weird words, some continentally type language, but if you know me, you know I love transcendental arguments. Let me see if I can just briefly give an overview. Sammy Pilstrom argues that uh, no theodicy, no justification of God in light of the problem of evil can be successful, can even be possibly successful for moral considerations. So if we're able to take a moral point of view on, on other uh, human beings in su who are suffering and whose suffering feels meaningless, then we can't explain away that feeling of meaninglessness by giving them a meaning through a theodicy. Hey, you feel like your suffering's meaningless? Well, it's not meaningless because God has a reason for it, blah, blah, blah. So Pilstrom argues that we can't do that if we're going to take a moral point of view on others. He argues that we do take moral points of view on others, moral points of views on others and their suffering. And therefore, no theodicy could possibly be successful because giving a theodicy would rule out being able to you know, commiserate or you know, see other people as morally significant, especially in their suffering that's experienced as meaningless. So I, I argue there's two different routes to combating this type of argument. There's direct and indirect approaches. A direct approach will take issue with the details of Pilstrom's argument, maybe saying that the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises or you know, picking on a couple of the premises and showing that they're under-motivated or clearly false. I think that a couple of his premises are, are false, are like you know, demonstrably false. And then uh, I argue that another one of his premises is really under-motivated and uh, might be more, uh, moral confusion at, at, at best. And at worst, it, it's begging the question against a successful theodicy. And then I, uh, the indirect approach, I argue, you can go even deeper into the presuppositions which make this argument intelligible. And the deeper presuppositions can be collected in a collection I'm calling Moral Realism. And then uh, I argue that the best explanation for moral realism is theism. And if theism, then successful theodicies are ruled in. So it's indirect in that it's not picking on the exact details of Pilstrom's argument, but it's using the same transcendental method or transcendental deduction to go even deeper, to find deeper foundations for his argument, and then saying, here's how we make sense of these foundations. Therefore, his argument can't be true. So... At the end of the day, I say, hey, look, maybe that's too slick. Maybe transcendental arguments are the problem. Uh, but if Pilstrom's argument is ruled in, then so is mine. And uh, if it's not, if mine isn't ruled in, then neither is his. So it's kind of a fun little way to get at it. Hope you guys enjoyed this video. If you like it, then leave me a comment. Let me know. It's still a work in progress, so I'm not 
I'm not claiming that, you know, I destroyed Pilstrom or anything like that. I'm probably not even pronouncing his name correctly. Let me know what you guys think because this is still a paper in progress. I'd love to get your thoughts. All right, let's jump right in. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. For, for those watching our video, this place is packed. There's just standing room only. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited about this. Uh, we're going to use some weird uh, technical terms, but I think I did a good job of defining them. So we'll see about that. And um, yeah, if I might have to skip through. I have my own transcendental argument at the end. We'll see uh, how that goes. So <clears throat> let me read the abstract so at least we know where we're going. So Sammy Pilstrom proposes a transcendental argument against the possibility of offering a successful theodicy on behalf of God. He argues that if any theodicy were successful, then we wouldn't be able to adopt a moral point of view. But since we actually do occupy a moral point of view, then no theodicy can possibly be successful. In this paper, I argue that Pilstrom's transcendental argument fails because it crucially depends on one demonstrably false premise and another highly questionable premise. I then pro propose a counter-transcendental argument whereby the possibility of adopting a moral point of view presupposes moral realism, which in turn is best explained by theism, thus also lending su support to the possibility of a successful theodicy. So, uh, that's where we're going. We'll see if we can get there. Pilstrom proposes a moral transcendental argument, a moral transcendental anti-theodicy, which if successful, successful would banish the very possibility of giving a successful theodicy from the moral realm. No one would be able to give one at all. Uh, but before covering Philstrom's moral transcendental argument against the possibility of theodicy, it's important to say a word or two about what a transcendental argument is. It's a weird word. It's kind of continentally. What's up with that? So transcendental arguments have typically been employed as anti-skeptical arguments, which take a given of human experience, G, and seek to show that something which the skeptic is skeptical about, S, is a necessary precondition of G, such that if we have G, then we must have S, and since we do in fact have G, therefore we also have S. Transcendental arguments have been put to use in various different ways against skeptics from at least as far back as Aristotle's indirect argument for the law of non-contradiction to Augustine's see, fall, or sum, that is, if I am mistaken, I exist, argument against the skeptical academicians of his time to Descartes' appropriation of the same argument in the form of the cogito ergo sum to modern-day attempts at refuting external world skepticism and skepticism about other minds, Donald Davidson, refuting brain innovat uh, skeptical threats, Hilary Putnam, to refuting naturalistic determinism, William Hasker, to a refutation of naturalistic cognition, Robert Coons. So it's not just the, uh, the continentals, analytics do it too, so it's okay. Regarding the name trans transcendental, Roger Scruton explains that an argument is transcendental if it transcends the limits of empirical inquiry so as to establish the a priori conditions of experience. Now, Pilstrom agrees, but disagrees a little bit. He, in his definition, he says, a transcendental argument explains, or he explains that medieval notion of the transcendentalia, it's still partially at work in Kantian conceptions of transcendental arguments. So when you think of the transcendentals, the good, the true, the beautiful, uh, that notion is still at work in Kant's understanding of transcendental arguments and in more modern examples of transcendental arguments. So um, 
the true, the good, the beautiful, one, all these pre are presupposed by all experience or being. So that's what's going on. I know it's a little bit weird, but if, uh, if a precondition of me speaking to you is that uh, there's air. So if you guys are hearing me talk right now, then there's air. So that's a precondition of, of me speaking. So for the rest of the paper, when I use, uh, I'll, I'll be talking about presuppositions. And there's a, there's a technical sense of presupposition I have in mind. That's a Strassonian presupposition, uh, though it originated with Gottlieb Frege. Um, but it's kind of technical and weird. I just need it for one point at the end. But let me just broach it. And then if you guys have a, a problem with my transcendental argument at the end, I can bring this back up. Uh, a presupposes B, if and only if. If A is true, then B is true. And B, if A is false, then B is true. So it sounds really goofy. It sounds really weird. If A is true, then B is true. If A is false, then B is true. Why? Because B is a precondition for the intelligibility of A. So if you even have, if A is possible, whether true or false, you have to have B. So it's a precondition in that sense. So uh, modus tollens wouldn't work, but modus ponens would. It's weird, but that's where we're going. So I think I got us there. Now we can get to uh, Pilstrom's argument. Uh, first, what's a theodicy? Let's, let's use Pilstrom's own terminology here. There are various accounts, but we're going to focus on his transcendental anti-theodicy argument. I'm going to call it TAT for short, T-A-T. Pilstrom says, generally, we may say that theodicies seek a justification, legitimation, or, and or excusing an omnipotent, omniscient, and absolutely benevolent God's allowing the world, his creation, to contain evil and suffering. So with this definition in hand, we can now consider the full tat, which if successful, again, would rule out the very possibility of any successful theodicy. So one, adopting a moral point of view on other human beings or the world in general is possible only if others' suffering or their experience of suffering or the truthful communication of such experience is, uh, is recognized or acknowledged. Two, recognizing, acknowledging the other suffering presupposes that suffering sincerely experienced as meaningless and or absurd is not explained away or justified in terms of any external imposed narrative structure of meaningfulness. Three, theodicies justify or explain away all suffering as part of an externally imposed, allegedly harmonious, either theologically or secular, total narrative, thus giving suffering a meaning or function not manifested and not recognized in the experience of suffering. For therefore, theodicies do not enable us to recognize, acknowledge other suffering. In, particularly, in particular, they fail to recognize the sufferer's inability to recognize any meaning or function in his or her suffering. Five, therefore, theodicies prevent us from adopting or occupying a moral point of view. But six, it is possible for us to adopt a moral point of view because we actually do. Therefore, theodicies must be rejected not only for moral, but for transcendental reasons. So for the sake of clarity, we can summarize Pilstrom's tat by simplifying it into a modus tollens form as follows. Letting T stand for the possibility of a successful theodicy and letting MPOV stand for uh, adopting a moral point of view. So this, isn't a, this is just a reduction to help us get to it. This isn't, strictly speaking, transcendental. But if, if T, then no MPOV. So if a theodicy, then no moral point of view, but moral point of view, we adopt a moral point of view towards each other. Therefore, 
no trend, uh, no theodicies. Man, I'm all over the place on this. A lot of weird continental words. Philstrom motivates three through his true, his two transcendental premises, one and two, and motivates, uh, motivates, uh, MPOV, the moral point of view, by an appeal to the intuitive fact that we humans actually do occupy a moral point of view. We do this. So because we do this, there's no way that any theodicy could uh, be successful. Now, as far as I can tell, when responding to Pilstrom's tat, there are at least two general approaches that the pro-theodicist, that is the one who wants to give a theodicy or thinks that they're possible, uh, they could take. They could take an indirect approach and a direct approach. A direct approach will take issue with the details of tat and give a reason for thinking that the argument is unsound based on its details. For example, by arguing that the conclusion doesn't follow from the premises or by seeking to refute one or more of the premises. On an indirect approach, however, the pro-theodicist will not focus on the soundness of the argument per se, but will instead propose a more fundamental presupposition, which the argument itself depends on, and then argue that this more fundamental presupposition is better accounted for on a theistic worldview than its contrary. In doing so, the pro-theodicist will seek to undermine Tat's conclusion by arguing that the presuppositions which make its premises intelligible are better explained by a worldview which negates Tat's conclusion, which is a pro-theodicist worldview. So it's like, it's, it's undercutting the very foundation. It's saying, Tat's this argument, and it depends on all these presuppositions, but these presuppositions depend on a Christian worldview or a theistic worldview. So this can't be true because it depends on presuppositions that are better accounted for on theism. So let's do uh, some direct approaches first, and then we'll see if we can get to the indirect. Refuting premise three. So one direct approach that the pro-theodicist can take against Pilstrom is to challenge premise three of Tat. So again, let me just read it. Theodicies justify or explain away all suffering as part of an externally imposed, allegedly harmonious total narrative, thus giving suffering a meaning or function not manifested and not recognized in the experience of the suffering. So someone's suffering and they think it's meaningless, but a theodicy comes along and says there is meaning, but the sufferer doesn't feel that way. <clears throat> so that he's saying that theodicies justify or explain away this feeling. Uh, in three, Pilstrom gives a characterization which is meant to capture all theodicies. The determ or three determines the scope of tat and is meant to target the entire category of theodicy, which can then be indicted and transcendentally rebuffed by the additional premises. But since three is meant to range over all possible theodicies, all that the pro-theodicist would need to refute three is to point to a theodicy which isn't captured by its characterization. This would have to be a theodicy which doesn't justify or explain away all suffering through an externally imposed total narrative that provides a meaning or function that is not recognized by the sufferer in their experience of suffering. And it seems to me that Peter Vandenwagen, PVI from now on, his free will theodicy is just such a theodicy. And if so, then three is demonstrably false, which means that the scope of tat is too broad and the anti-theodicy conclusion doesn't follow. Now in the paper, Magnitude, Duration, and Distribution of Evil, PVI argues that the free will theodicy, i.e. the theodicy which seeks to exonerate God by claiming that evil is the result of an abuse of the good gift of free will, which God bestowed on mankind, this can solve the problem of moral evil as well as the problem of natural evil. Moral evils result from the free will decisions of free creatures, and natural evils result from our broken communion with our Creator, which was broken through humanity's free choice. 
Since morally fallen human creatures live in God's world while being alienated from him and his guidance, again, as a result of our own choices, it stands to reason that there will be instances where hurricanes or tornadoes produce natural evils like mass death and destruction, which would not have occurred had the moral fall not taken place, and had we still been in deep communion with God, who would have guided us to safety. He further argues that our moral separation from God could have hampered or eliminated our preternatural abilities to sense danger and avoid the natural events which cause natural evils today. So he's connecting natural evils to moral evils in a way that uh, exonerates God for these natural disasters. After responding to moral and natural evils by way of free will, theodicy more generally, PVI goes on to provide answers to the problems of the magnitude and duration of evil to various degrees of plausibility. But the plausibility of PVI's overall theodicy is not what we need in order to refute Pilstrom's premise three. Instead, it's his answer to the distributions of evil. PVI asked why non-moral instances of evil, which he calls horrors, happen to innocence while the wicked so often prosper. To which he replies that there is no reason, or at least there are cases wherein there is no reason for why horror X happened to person S. While he argues that God has a reason for not stopping every instance of a horror, at least some horrors are distributed at random. Now, uh, quoting PVI, in separating ourselves from God, we have somehow deprived ourselves of our primordial defenses against such potentially destructive things as tigers, landslides, and tornadoes. But if by our rebellion and folly we have allowed the destructive potential of these things to become actual, how shall we expect the effects of that actuality to be distributed? At random, surely. That is, with no correlation between these things and the innocent or innocence or wickedness of the people they impinge on. Since the operations of these things in no way depend upon the moral qualities of the people they interact with. In fact, there is little correlation between the manner in which these things operate and any factor under human control, although civilization does what it can to try to induce correlations of this type. Thus, on PVI's theodicy, there are instances of suffering, indeed of horrors, which are distributed at random, i.e. they do not happen as a result of any subsequent or antecedent good, nor are they meant to bring about a greater good. They simply happen because of chance. These instances of suffering aren't justified or explained away by a totalizing narrative which provides the sufferer the suffering with a meaning or function that is not recognized in the sufferer's experience. The victim of these randomly distributed horrors who feels like their suffering is merely random will, according to PVI, be correct in their judgment. Their suffering is, in fact, random. So we don't need to defend the details of PVI's theodicy here in order to refute Pilstrom's premise three. The fact that PVI's theodicy does not fit Pilstrom's characterization of theodicies in three shows that it is false, since not all theodicy, since the, since not all theodicies justify or explain away suffering by giving them a meaning or function which isn't experienced by the sufferer. Since there is at least one theodicy which falls outside the scope of three. Not all theodicies must be rejected on transcendental grounds, and thus the conclusion of Tat is demonstrably false. But perhaps Philstrom could modify three to three star and salvage his argument. So here's three star. Most, theodic- most theodicies, not all, but most theodicies justify or explain away all suffering as a part of an externally imposed, allegedly harmonious total narrative, thus giving suffering a meaning or function not manifested and not recognized in the experience of suffering. So boom, PVI, okay, he's here, his thing's good, 
but I'm going to say most instead. But here's the problem: in limiting the scope of, uh, in limiting the scope from theodicy simpliciter to most theodicies, we've introduced an empirical claim which would take additional work to substantiate. This adjustment will likewise limit the scope of the conclusion, and hence Pilstrom could at best conclude that most theodicies must be rejected. But this doesn't have near the transcendental strength that Tat boasted of. Instead, perhaps Pilstrom should modify three to three star star. Three star star says there is a type of theodicy which justifies, explains away all suffering as part of an externally imposed, allegedly harmonious total narrative. So uh, it's not all and it's not most, it's there is a type, there's a category. And these are bad. These need to be transcendentally rebuffed. But in modifying three to three star star, Pilstrom once again will lose his transcendental force of his anti-theodicist argument. So instead of ruling out all theodicies from the armchair, the anti-theodicist will instead need to take each theodicy on its own merits and show that a given theodicy is the type described in three star star. They will need to add a, Pilstrom will need to add an additional premise to the argument, which says something like, theodicy X is the type of theodicy described in three star star, and only then can he run tat star star, the conclusion of which is limited in its scope to the particular theodicy being considered, i.e. theodicy X. This concession is a substantial diminishment from tat, but even more can be done to directly challenge tat. So now we're going to challenge premise two of his original argument. A pro-theodicist challenging premise two uh, might argue that they might pick on this premise because it appears to beg the question against successful theodicies. So recall premise two. Recognizing or, or acknowledging the other suffering presupposes that suffering sincerely experienced as meaningless and or absurd is not explained away or justified in terms of any externally imposed narrative structure of meaningfulness. Premise two asserts that one cannot recognize or acknowledge another's suffering while also seeking to provide the sufferer with a meaningful context for interpreting their suffering, if said suffering is, at least initially, experienced as meaningless or absurd. But why think this premise is true? It seems like the only reason to affirm premise two is if you know ahead of time that the suffering in question tr truly is meaningless or absurd. In that case, it looks like it looks as though it would be immoral to try and explain away another suffering, but this begs the question against theodicies. It assumes that there is no extant theodicy, nor could there be one, which accurately depicts the reality of the sufferer's situation and justifies the suffering therein. But if there was a meaningful reason for why the sufferer had to endure the suffering they were experiencing, then presumably the sufferer would want to know what that reason was, especially if they were experiencing the suffering as meaningless and or absurd. It might even be immoral for us not to share that reason with them. So consider the following case. A little girl tries to pet a stray dog, but is bit on the hand. The bite breaks the skin and the little girl runs home to her dad. The girl's dad goes out to try and find and capture the dog in order to have it tested for rabies, but he's unable to. So now he is forced to take his daughter to the doctor for rabies shots. The pain from the bite on her hand is neglig negligible compared to the 30 some odd shots needed for the va uh, rabies vaccine. The little girl has no frame of reference for the lethality of the rabies disease or the seriousness of her situation. Her father has to hold her down in order for the doctor to administer the vaccine shots. She is in the midst of suffering, and if her father does not justify her suffering in terms of an externally imposed 
narrative structure of meaningfulness, then she will experience her suffering as meaningless and or absurd. For the pain from the dog bite has already subsided, and even at its worst, it paled in comparison to the stomach shots. And yet, it is because of the father's recognition and acknowledgement of the suffering of his daughter that he bends over backwards in explaining and justifying his actions. Indeed, it would be far worse for the little girl and even immoral for the father to let his daughter continue to experience her suffering as meaningless when he had a perfectly good explanation for her suffering on hand. The case above demonstrates that one can recognize another's suffering while still seeking to justify it in terms of an externally imposed structure of meaningfulness. In fact, there are cases in which the recognition of someone's suffering actually compels us to provide such a meaningful explanation if we can do so. So then, premise two of TAT is at best a mistaken moral principle, and at worst, it begs the question against the possibility of an accurate theodicy. So now on to the indirect approach. I don't expect you guys to like this one all all that much, but we'll see. The second approach available to the pro-theodicist is indirect and more transcendental in nature. Instead of taking issue with the particulars of TAT, the pro-theodicist can move the conversation to a deeper level by examining the presuppositions which make TAT intelligible and then argue that these presuppositions can either either presuppose a pro-theodicist worldview or are better accounted for on a pro-theodicist worldview than its contrary. This approach has a what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander flavor to it, in that while the anti-theodicists sought to undermine the possibility of giving a theodicy through giving necessary conditions which rule out theodicies, the pro-theodicist can likewise undermine the project of the anti-theodicist by showing that TAT presupposes principles that are best explained by pro-theodicism. If the presuppositions which make TAT intelligible themselves presuppose or are more at home in a worldview that is pro-theodicist, then TAT can't be used to argue against pro-theodicism. So what are the presuppositions that make TAT intelligible? Consider, once again, the trend two transcendental premises of TAT, one and two. Adopting a moral point of view on other human beings or the world in general is possible only if other sufferings or their experience of suffering or the truthful communication of such experiences is recognized or acknowledged. Two, recognizing, acknowledging the other suffering presupposes that suffering sincerely experienced as meaningless and or absurd is not explained away or justified in terms of any externally imposed narrative structure of meaningfulness. Now, I've given reasons for thinking that two is false above, but when it comes to analyzing the presuppositions which make make these two premises of TAT intelligible, the key features to focus on are one, adopting a moral point of view on other human beings, two, recognizing or acknowledging the suffering of another human being. So if we're able to adopt a moral point of view on other human beings, then we're going to need moral agency. For if we aren't moral agents capable of making decisions for reasons, then the very idea of adopting a moral point of view wouldn't make sense. It would be unintelligible. Another presupposition of these two premises is personal dignity, i.e. that human beings are intrinsically valuable, that they have moral status, and that they are worthy of moral consideration, care, sympathy, empathy, recognition, and acknowledgement. If human beings did not possess personal dignity, premise one and two would be utterly unintelligible. But not only must human persons have personal dignity, Other humans must know about said personal dignity if they are to exercise their moral agency in taking a moral point of view on their fellows. That is to say, moral knowledge is another presupposition of TAT. 
But if there is to be moral knowledge, then human beings must also have moral faculties which help them learn, discover, reflect on, enumerate, deliberate about, adjudicate between, etc., different items of moral knowledge. So another presupposition of TAT is that human beings have generally reliable moral faculties. Moral knowledge and faculties also presuppose that there are objective moral facts which can be known by different human persons and can be cited in instances of moral disagreement. The very act of moral reasoning presupposes that there is a moral fact of the matter to reason about. But just because there are moral facts out there to be known by moral personal agents like us by way of our moral faculties doesn't necessarily mean that we will act or even want to act according to our best moral knowledge. We don't have to adopt a moral point of view on other human beings, nor do we have to acknowledge or recognize the suffering of other moral agents like ourselves. So moral virtue must be, a, must be possible if TAT is to be intelligible. So we can sum- summarize the set of moral presuppositions of TAT in the following list. One, uh, moral agency. Two, moral, one, moral agency. Two, personal dignity. Three, moral knowledge. Four, moral capacities five moral facts, and six moral virtue. Call this set of moral presuppositions needed in order to make TAT intelligible moral moral realism, MR. Now that the presuppositions of TAT have been deduced, the the theistic pro-theodicist can explain how theism accounts for MR, moral realism. On theism, God is the summum bonum, and thus all moral facts are ultimately grounded in God's nature. God made mankind as his own personal image with intrinsic personal dignity to be moral agents who love him, each other, and care for his creation as he intends. Humans were created to grow in their knowledge of God, to come to learn more about him, and to grow in their moral character. Indeed, to grow to be perfect as their Father in heaven, in whose image they have been made, is perfect. Now, God as, God as the summum bonum provides a simple, internally consistent and coherent, cause, causally adequate, unified, and beautiful explanation for moral realism. But if God is the summum bonum who grounds moral realism by his own nature and divine activity, then this God of goodness would have a morally sufficient reason for allowing the suffering we experience to obtain in, in the world, even if our own moral capacities don't allow us to know exactly what his reasons may be. The onus will be on the anti-theodicist to demonstrate that this good God could not possibly have a morally sufficient reason for allowing the suffering that he does but they'll have to use a different argument than TAT since the presuppositions which make it intelligible are better explained by theistic pro-theodicism. Thus, based on our indirect approach to TAT, the pro-theodicist can generate a new transcendental argument for theodicy along the following lines. Call it transcendental pro-theodicy argument, TPT. If God exists, then God would have a morally sufficient reason for the suffering that humans experience. If moral realism, then God exists as the best explanation of or necessary uh, presupposition of moral realism. If tat is intelligible, then moral realism. Tat is intelligible, even though false. Remember back to the the Strassonian presupposition. So if tat is intelligible, then moral realism. Tat is intelligible, even though false. So moral realism. God exists. Therefore, God has a morally sufficient reason for the suffering that humans experience. And I'm not, I'm not using the same numbers because I changed them. I have A, I have letters, you guys have numbers, but you can see it on there. Now, perhaps the reader will think TPT is too slick to be of any value. But again, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. 
If TPT reaches its conclusions too quickly, then so does TAT. And perhaps the problem is with transcendental argumentation in general. But if transcendental reasoning is ruled in, and TAT is to be taken seriously, then so is TPT. But TPT has an advantage over TAT in that it follows its transcendental deductions to more fundamental presuppositions and provides a more comprehensive and simple explanation for the possibility of morality than does TAT. So conclusion, I've argued that Pilstrom's transcendental argument against the possibility of successful theodicies relies on a demonstrably false premise, which is three, a very contentious and under-motivated premise, two, and that the very same transcendental method that Pilstrom uses in establishing his transcendental premises, one and two, can be used to undermine his conclusion by deducing more fundamental presuppositions, sense of God, of a theistic pro-theodicism. Therefore, tat is false. Boom. Right. Right. Not Pardon, we have about 11 minutes for questions and answers. Right. Yeah, that's cool, man. Paper, thank Parker. Uh, just to add the Peter Van Hinwagen, uh, uh, theodicy, you can also check out Stuart Genses, who has a similar view in terms of seeing the overall as being everyone the past by God's grace to his eternal perfect happiness. Hmm. And that's this serious gratuitous evils and so on. Yeah. And uh, doesn't override this whole neighborhood. So it's in an, the white well. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, so. Awesome. Thank you. That's huge. Yeah. Sir. Yeah. Zach. Um, show question. Here's more real. Browse. All right. There. More realist. Get through more that. Going backwards. The argument. Yeah, so I would say um, I don't need to get to ground level. All I need to do to beat Pilstrom is go a level deeper. That's the transcendental deduction game. So I get to go one deeper than you do, so I win. If you can go deeper than me, you know, good luck. But I'm also doing a transcendental argument. So I'm doing transcendental premise to transcendental premise to inference to the best explanation at the bottom. And so I'm not saying that um, God is a necessary precondition of moral realism, but he better explains the alternative. And so uh, moral realism might be false, but his argument depends on moral realism is my argument. So um, if moral realism is false, then the whole uh, house of cards falls. So I'm not trying to argue in favor of moral realism, but I'm, what I'm arguing is 
your argument presupposes the truth of moral realism. So let's say, you know, if moral realism, then what must be true? Well, there's a, these things must be true, and these must be a, a better explanation for these presuppositions is God. So it's kind of a, um, it's kind of contingent on moral realism, but he's the one who ruled it in by saying, you know, we have to take this moral point of view. And so maybe he could, he could nitpick and say, actually, you don't have to be a moral realist in order to take this moral point of view. But I, I think that's implausible and we could debate on that too. Yeah. Does that make sense? I'm not saying we have to go. Yeah. 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 So that's why I want to hook them together and say, hey, it's sauce for the goose, sauce for. If mine's no good, then neither is yours. Because if we're playing this game, then I get to play the game too. And mine go deeper than yours. Um, I'm not sure what it would look like to go deeper than the presuppositions I found for taking a moral point of view. You, I think God could be one, but it's really hard to establish that final necessary precondition. That's why I just opted for an inference to the best explanation. Yeah. It's goofy, a lot of weird words. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate what you're doing here. This is not uh, maybe so much about transcendental argument. Sure. I'm doing work at the Odyssey, and I see there's a number of people, both atheists and Christians, who are saying to to present the Odyssey is to justify evil or explain it away. Yeah. I wonder if there's a meaningful distinction between um, saying there's a reason mm. God must have a good reason for why there's evil, even if I don't know what the reason is. Yeah, and explaining it away. I'm explaining that there's a reason mm. versus explaining it away. Yeah. It seems to me the latter of what they're saying is it's like you're denying the suffering of the individual. You're making light of the suffering. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Pilstrom, um, I think he's, I, I like what he does in saying that the sufferer is experiencing their suffering as being meaningless. And that, in order to take them seriously, uh, we need to acknowledge that. And so what he's saying is that a theodicy would explain it away. Because it's saying, um, look, you're wrong. I know you're thinking that your suffering is, is meaningless. You're wrong. So let me, let me tell you the meaning for it. And they're like, look, no, I'm not experiencing any meaning. And so I think Pilstrom, in using that particular language, is, is being pretty, pretty slick. Because um, you are explaining it away if uh, you buy into his, his premises. So um, the, it's the experience of meaninglessness that we have to kind of get around. That's why I was saying... We, we need to explain it away in certain situations we're actually like morally obligated to because your, your meaning, your suffering is not meaningless. It's not. And let me tell you why. So um, I, I like the experience part of that, like the phenomenology of it. It's pretty fun. Um, I, I had another one for you, but I can't remember now. Um, can you, I think you can explain that there's meaning to it, but also be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Without explaining it away. I'm yeah. not I'm not saying you're not suffering yeah. for this pain isn't real. Yeah. I want to be sympathetic to yeah. you. I, I'm sorry you're going through this, right. but right. there's a great Yeah, so so that's good too. That's being careful in that in offering any kind of greater good or uh justif justifying um antecedent or subsequent good and saying, Look, I, I understand that you're still suffering. 
that I'm not explaining away your suffering. The, the tricky move by Pilstrom is he's not just dealing with suffering, he's dealing with the experience of suffering as meaningless. So in explaining away that, you're, you are explaining away that thing because you're telling him that it's not meaningless. And so that's what I was doing with Peter Vanderwagen's where I'm like, well, his is, Vanderwagen's is really fun for this case because uh, it is kind of meaningless, even though there's an explanation like you're saying. So I, I like his even, if you're going to go the further route of the phenomenology of the suffering as meaningless, PVI's works against that. If you don't have that in there, I think it's totally right. Like, yeah, um, I'm, I'm so sorry that you're suffering. There, there is a, a justifying reason, and it doesn't mean you're not suffering. It doesn't mean it's not hard. Well, yeah, what do, you, what do you think about that? There, there are multiple ways really to diffuse his argument. Yeah. Whether you're going the transcendental route, yeah. or you're just denying a couple of one or two or more of these premises. Totally. Um, yeah. There's multiple, which is good. I love that. Yeah, let's take them on, all of them. Yeah. Thank, thanks for coming to this. I know like uh, there's a lot of more exciting stuff going on. So I appreciate you guys coming. This is awesome. Sure. <laughs> I love that. But arguing awesome. Yeah, that's the thing. We're all in a simulation anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks guys.